0: topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu.
1: Welcome to episode 128 of the Naturally Nourished podcast. Today is going to be a jaw-dropping episode and we are so excited to bring on a long Anticipated guest, Dr. Nadir Ali, and we're calling today's episode Keto Cardiologist. So we are going to be covering a lot of information about the pathophysiology or basically the disease process of heart disease. We're going to be talking about the role of saturated fat, the role of cholesterol on the influence of your heart health, as well as a lot of the misinformation and probably highly funded, misinterpreted, or manipulated studies on statin drugs, as well as the role of LDL potentially being something that is favorable for the body. So a lot of shock and awe stuff coming, and Becky and I are so excited to bring Dr. Nadir Ali on. I met him two years ago at KetoCon, and uh, we also did an awesome event
2: with him
1: uh, just recently in the last six months at Low Carb Houston.
2: Yes. Dr. Ali is so knowledgeable and he has this ability to quote studies kind of like off the cuff that I wish I could emulate. It's amazing. Um, So he'll be sharing some really incredible information with you guys. And again, this has been really long awaited and we wanted to bring someone on who is truly an expert in his field. Um, So before we bring on our guest, let's share, Ali, with listeners some resources to consider if cardiovascular disease or risk is of high concern.
1: Yes, and we will also link in today's episode. We do have a couple episodes that have kind of laid the foundation of heart disease. So we'll be sure to link those episodes. They're earlier on like 60 plus episodes back. So this was long awaited to, to do another refresher. And I think that today's episode's a little more high level. So if you're looking at you know mechanisms of inflammation and general explanation about cholesterol, Um, We'll definitely link that episode in the show notes. But I want to share, yes, our top considerations on supplements as well as lab that we have to look deeper into, and Dr. Nadira Lee will definitely hit on A lot of the uh, analytes or assessment markers within our cardiometabolic lab. And so that's something that you'll be able to order off the website. If you have been asking your doctor to run, for instance, lipoprotein particle size or C reactive protein or homocysteine and other coagulation factors, and you're not getting the information that you're asking for, this is a really great way to just do it, get the info, and then be empowered as you know your own driver of your healthcare and coordinate that within your medical team. So supplements first, and then we'll, we'll give a little more details on that lab. Um, I'm just going to kind of list really briefly because we want to get into the nuts and bolts of today's episode with Dr. Ali and let him really be the star of the show. But he's going to share with you guys, which isn't new information, but he does it so eloquently that Of course, the biggest influencing factors of heart disease are not cholesterol but are instead inflammation as well as dysmetabolic um, expression in the body, meaning elevated insulin levels, elevated blood sugar levels, and that kind of cascades into elevated triglyceride levels. So a, a great foundational formula is our EPA DHA Extra. I recommend getting, and that's an omega-3 fatty acid. I recommend getting about two grams of EPA and DHA in combination. And this is the best way to address hypertriglyceridemia or elevated triglycerides in the blood. Omega-3s are a pretty direct influencing factor of bringing down the triglyceride levels, even if it's a genetic factor. And they can also have a fantastic role in bringing down inflammation, be that omega-3s are anti-inflammatory. So two to three capsules of this EPA DHA Extra generally is going to outperform upwards of eight to 10 over-the-counter fish oils. Um, And this EPA DHA Extra is also, within all products of the Naturally Nourished Supplement line, third-party assessed to ensure that potency and purity. And you know that you will not get any fillers like soybean oil and a lot of the garbage you'll find in your, you know, Kirkland's and other brands of uh, like over-the-counter from your large grocery stores because these won't be third party assessed. So big thing to watch for when you're selecting an omega-3 and that's your best way to bring down triglycerides and um, also support inflammation. Now, if you're looking to just Kind of reset your cholesterol and bring it down in general and also support detox. Phytofiber might be a really great thing to bring into your regimen because it does bind. It's a plant-based whole food fiber supplement, highly superior to something like Metamucil, which can cause more inflammation in the body. Phytofiber uses both soluble and insoluble fiber from things like apple pectin, um, carrot fiber. So you're getting whole food, antioxidant-rich formula, which is going to reduce oxidative stress to the body, but also bind and pull excess cholesterol and drive bowel uh, mass, which will help with detoxification. So something to consider in that world. I also recommend everyone taking a quality probiotic. So we'll link our baseline, which is the Restore... (laughs) baseline probiotic. It's a 50-50 blend of lacto and bifido strains. And this is the same probiotic we use in our probiotic challenge in the clinic. Um, this is going to be a really great tool because we know there's a huge connection with like periodontal disease and or gum disease and heart disease, and it all comes down to this connection that there's probably some element of infection or bacteria in the pathophysiology of heart disease. And we're seeing so much more. There's that awesome. Um, have you seen Becky the uh, documentary yet? I think it's called Root Something about like root canals. I have kind not. Of a, it's very buzzworthy. Maybe we'll have to okay. do that this week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um so definitely being on a probiotic is a great way to kind of have that that blanket of support for the microbiome and cardiovascular connection. Connecting onto that would be our berberine boost and then berberine in its nature also not only has antimicrobial properties, but also can be a hypoglycemic, so it can bring down blood sugar levels. And especially if you're prone towards yeast overgrowth, this is what we use in our candida or dysbiosis cleanse bundle. Um, But this is something that can bring down blood pressure, blood sugar. So if you're doing keto and you're still waking with higher fasted blood sugars, this can be a really great tool. Um, and also can support bile flow in the liver, um, which then in turn is going to bile emulsifies, and that's going to gather and pull also lipids to keep that regulated. And then the last three I'll spit at you, and I'm doing this (laughs) fast just because we want Dr. Ali on here in moments, um, is the inflamazine. I bring that in anytime someone has an elevated LPA, which is an aggregation or a sticky factor in their blood. It's a genetic marker An inflamazime has botanical anti-inflammatory compounds as well as proteolytic enzymes. Along that vein, if you're just dealing with inflammation and yuck, super turmeric might be something to consider as well to bring down a C-reactive protein value. Um, And then a B-complex would be my final recommendation in this little thrown-together list, Uh, and that's going to help to regulate homocysteine and drive methylation. And homocysteine is a marker of vascular um, integrity. Um, and a risk factor on an
2: inflammatory level. Okay, so I'll link to all of those products so you guys can check them out in the show notes as well as that cardiometabolic lab that Allie was talking about. Um, You can get that run on our website, for 350 and that'll include an email analysis of the lab along with specific recommendations based on your results. So if you are an individual who's just curious about this stuff or someone who has a familial known risk factor, that's definitely a really good way to empower yourself with information and honestly would cost a lot less than if your insurance didn't cover some of the individual lab markers in that. Yes.
1: And the the list price for these labs are in the 700s. So we do at a really raw rate. And then, yeah, the 350 price includes also a personalized email. So we'll highlight the biggest areas of concern and help you to kind of weigh out cost to benefit of what formulas might be the most appropriate. What's cool about Cardiometabolic Lab is, yes, it includes the lipoprotein particle distribution. It includes, of course, your standard lipid panel, so cholesterol, triglycerides, LDL, HDL, And um, we also look at fasting insulin, hemoglobin A1C. There's a whole panel called prediabetes markers, which includes also metabolic markers like adiponectin, which looks at the metabolism of your kind of gray fat versus the, the more metabolically active tissue versus the white fat. We look at your leptin, which is a really important hormone to assess if you're considering carb cycling. Uh, I love to to annual that to excuse me assess that at least annually within my body, and I take that into consideration with my hormone health. Uh, It also looks at then an inflammatory component in the panel, which gives you an omega three to omega six ratio in your blood. It assesses your level of omega three status on both EPA and DHA, and it looks at C-reactive protein, homocysteine. Uh, What are the other markers in there, Becky? There's another inflammatory marker. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Pop quiz, and I'm not. (laughs) Oh, LP little a, LP little a, lipoprotein (laughs) particle A. So it looks at some of those uh, stickiness factors in the blood, which are more prone towards like stroke and so forth. So super thorough. We're looking at 30 different assessment markers at a really great price of $350. would be a great uh, Father's Day gift, Mother's Day gift or just an investment within yourself. So let's get into Dr. Ali's bio. We'll we'll put all the links so you guys can kind of peruse all this information and resource on your own. But let's bring the man on and um,
2: do the thing. All right. Nadir Ali is an interventional cardiologist with over 25 years of experience. He is also the chairman of the Department of Cardiology at Clear Lake Regional Medical Center. Before working as a cardiologist, he served as an an assistant professor of medicine for eight years at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, where he also received his medical training. He's championed many aspects of the science and practice of a low-carb lifestyle in the local Clear Lake area since 2013. Ali organizes a monthly nutritional seminar in the Circe Auditorium of the Clear Lake Hospital that receives more than 100 visitors every month from the local community. Improving people's health is his ultimate goal.
1: And he has a website, eatmostlyfat.com, that you can watch a lot of his YouTube videos. And really, if you just put his name into your computer search, you're going to find a lot of awesome information. He's all about sharing this information free, which is amazing. And um, I think that you'll get a little bit of a taste of his passion for really... Shining a light on how a low carb and ketogenic diet can be the most heart healthy diet out there, so be ready to have your mind blown. let's bring him on.
2: Welcome, Dr. Ali. We are so excited to have you as a guest on the podcast today
3: Oh, I'm honored to be on your podcast uh, this is this is really a privilege oh yes. wonderful.
2: <laughs> And this episode for our listeners has been a long time coming. I know we get tons and tons of questions about keto and cardiovascular disease. I have clients emailing me daily with their doctors, you know, wanting to put them on a statin and and trying to avoid that medication. So I think we're going to go deep into a lot of those concerns and and kind of put people's minds at ease for sure. Um, So I want to talk first about the pathophysiology of how heart disease actually, occurs. Occurs and maybe how you would define the root cause of cardiovascular disease
3: so I guess that's a 64 million dollar question when you ask what is the (laughs) cause of heart disease (laughs) Uh, we can try to um, we can try to dissect some of this and uh, look at it from a different standpoint So the traditional view is that heart disease is related to high cholesterol, specifically high LDL cholesterol, uh, which people call the bad cholesterol. I have a problem with calling LDL as the bad cholesterol because it does so many good things in the body. And the prevailing theory is that the LDL cholesterol gets into a certain portion of the blood vessel wall and incites an inflammatory reaction, an immunologic reaction. What that means is that, like let's say you injure yourself through a fall, you get an abrasion, redness, and swelling, and that's what is called inflammation. And the cholesterol in the blood vessel incites an inflammation and that leads to buildup of plaque And that in the end would cause a reduction in blood flow because it compromises blood flow through through that blood vessel. And that will lead to um, heart disease. But this is still a theory, and you would be surprised to find that several details about whether the cholesterol gets in there because it's trying to repair an injury, whether it is actually getting there, by what process is unclear still. And unfortunately, there has been a lot of focus on reducing cholesterol to the detriment of the population of not only the United States, but the entire world. Because all dietary advice that is given to reduce cholesterol will inevitably lead to obesity will lead to insulin resistance, and we can um, get into the nuts and bolts of that in a little bit, and will cause many of the changes that leads to diabetes, strokes, heart disease, cancers. So these chronic diseases, as we call them, the Western diseases, are more or less related to lifestyle. And a principal component of lifestyle not the only component is nutrition. So we are making the U.S. population sick and the world population ill by our dietary advice. And 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 I think you guys are on the forefront of changing that. So I'm always happy to talk to you all. (laughs)
1: Thank you. And I think what's so interesting is with you saying that LDL might not be bad at all, what are some of the redeeming properties potentially?
3: So um, there are multiple levels of evidence that indicate that LDL might actually be very good for you. So first let's take uh, population-based evidence. So I'll give three quick examples. One of them is the study done by Dr. Malcolm Kendrick. And Dr. Malcolm Kendrick is a stalwart in this area and he has done um, uh, the, the cholesterol con he's got a, a book um, which is a good read but he collected 70,000 patients above the age of 50 from various different clinical trials and he, w- he was trying to answer one question does LDL correlate with mortality what that means is that if you have high LDL is there a risk of you dying earlier And what was found is that the reverse was true. The highest your LDL was after the age of 50, the lower your risk of dying. So that's very paradoxical, right? Because you would expect higher LDL would lead to a higher risk of dying. So he found an inverse correlation or a lack of a correlation of LDL as a cause of death. And the other thing that he found is that the lower your LDL, the greater the risk of you having an all-cause mortality. That means dying of different causes. Now, the second piece of evidence comes from small population studies, but they are quite significant because, and I'll quote one of them, and that is the study done in um, Netherlands in the town of Leiden. So they took about a thousand people between the age of 85 and 95 years of age. And so these are people in their advanced age, they are at high risk of dying. So they followed them for 10 years, not for a short period of time. And they divided people into high cholesterol, middle cholesterol, and low cholesterol. The high cholesterol was somewhere in the 300 range The middle cholesterol was in the 250 range and the low cholesterol was 200 or below. And one thing I'd like to point out to the listeners is that if you have high cholesterol, you also have high LDL. They go hand in hand. So the lowest risk of dying was in the highest cholesterol group. The lowest risk of having cancers was in the highest cholesterol group the lowest risk of dying of pneumonia so older people die of pneumonias so the highest risk of you getting pneumonia was in the lowest cholesterol group the highest cholesterol group had a lower risk so i've given you just two population-based studies that show that high cholesterol is in fact good for you after age 50. but then you know there's a lot of biochemical evidence There is a lot of evidence in terms of what are the things that LDL contributes to. It would surprise most health practitioners to know that LDL is a very important host defense mechanism. Like let's say when you get bacteria that get into your system through a pneumonia, the LDL is there to neutralize those bacteria. So it's an important host defense mechanism. What other people do not realize is that the LDL is a carrier molecule for CoQ10, which is vitally important for muscle function. Uh, CoQ10 is needed by every cell so that their mitochondria function well. Um, the LDL also carries antioxidants, carries fat soluble vitamins. So I'm just getting into some of the primary functions of. LDL cholesterol. And this is not something that an average medical practitioner pays any attention to. All they are thinking is that high LDL is going to lead to heart disease. And so I need to stamp it out.
2: Yes. And I love hearing this. We've mentioned on the podcast before that cholesterol can work as a hormonal supportive building block of our sexual hormones, even as an antioxidant. So I think those properties in and of themselves, in addition to what you mentioned, are really redeeming. And then we know you, Dr. Ali, from the low carb community. So as you mentioned kind of in your intro, um, you mentioned that a lot of the conventional recommendations for cardiovascular disease are going to actually have us end up obese and with higher risk. So let's talk about how you discovered low carb and how you view a ketogenic diet to support heart health.
3: Um. So I will take the second question first and I'll come back to how I discovered low-carb in the beginning. Sounds good. (laughs) I've been practicing low-carb medicine now for five years. Now, today I had at least five patients who came to my office and I saw a number of patients this morning. I'll take you an example of a 69-year-old lady. She was obese, had a BMI of 35. Um, had an LDL cholesterol less than 100. She was teetering on becoming a diabetic. Uh, You measure average blood sugar with hemoglobin A1C, and that in her case was about 6.3. So if if you're 6.4, you're considered to be a diabetic. And she was hypertensive. She had triglycerides, which is the fat in the blood, which was in the mid-200s and a normal value is considered to be less than 150. So about a couple of years ago, she came and she uh, came to one of my nutritional seminars and decided to go on a low carb journey. And now her hemoglobin A1c has dropped from 6.3 to 5.3. Her weight has come down to a body mass index of 22. Her LDL cholesterol has steadily increased Now this is considered to be the bad cholesterol, which I do not want to call it the bad cholesterol. It has gone up to a little over 200. Her HDL, which people call as the good cholesterol is 96. Her triglycerides are in the 50s. They went from 250 to 50s. This lady feels better than she has ever felt in the last 10 years. But the tragic thing for her is that with the LDL going up to 200, she is scared that that means that she's at impending risk of heart disease. So when she goes to a physician and they see an LDL of 200, they will say, "Uh, you are almost on your deathbed. (laughs) And what you need to do is immediately take a very high dose of a cholesterol-reducing medicine. And you need to stop eating fat. And that's what she was doing before she came to me because she was following a low fat diet, had gained 50 pounds, had become a diabetic, had high amounts of fat in her blood. Her cholesterol quality was very poor. So all the traditional advice that mainstream medicine gives is making you obese and diabetic. And the advice that the low-carb community is giving is making people non-diabetic, controlling their weight, controlling their blood pressure, reducing the fat in the blood, which is triglycerides, improving the levels of HDL. But the conflict that we are still faced with mainstream medicine is that LDL is going up. And many people think that that is bad. And I'm not sure that is bad if you put in the right kind of evaluations on this patients. Like for example, this patient who has high LDL, she um, does not have any coronary calcium. Her coronary calcium score is zero, which is a very good indication of her cardiac health. Her stress test is normal. She has no cardiac symptoms. So I want people to make their own decisions, which is, you know, the, all this information is available to us. When you go on this nutritional program, are your sugars getting better? Is your triglyceride coming down? Is your good cholesterol going up? Do you feel better? Have you lost body fat? Do your baseline has that improved and then your doctor can do certain additional tests to see if there is any coronary disease or heart disease so i i don't know if that kind of gives you an answer as to why on a daily basis i get confirmation from my patients of their improved health that it makes me feel relevant it makes me feel that i'm doing the right <laughs> thing and the way I came into this journey is a personal story. I can get into that, but I want to pause here and see if I am giving you the right information.
1: No, I think it's wonderful, Dr. Ali. And, you know, Becky and I in clinic run a cardiometabolic panel that looks at the LDL particle size. And we do find, and I'm curious if you do as well. During active weight loss, LDL will often go up higher, I assume, because the liver is processing higher amounts of endogenous fat. And um, when we look at the particle distribution, we tend to see as the diet reduces the refined carbohydrates that the small dense type 3 and type 4 will go down even in light of potential increase of the total LDL. And we often say, now this isn't my phrase, but I've heard it, that you know cholesterol is like the firefighter at the scene of a fire, right? They, they don't cause the incident. They may be present at the incident, but it's not what we need to be solely focused on, maybe potentially focused at all if it has protective properties what would be some of the things you do hone in on as far as good indicators of risk? You mentioned hemoglobin A1C, maybe other top three or four um, assessment markers for listeners to focus in on to know more of a true risk factor.
3: So if I am understanding Ali correctly, and she's got a little bit of an echo, um, but uh, I understood your aspect about what you think about LDL cholesterol, how it is a firefighter, and how you think that a carbohydrate-rich diet can actually reduce the LDL but cause a problem with cholesterol quality or lipoprotein quality. Particle size, right. And I right. think you ended up by asking a question as to what are three a few factors that I hone on to evaluate somebody. Is that correct?
1: Yes. So you mentioned A1c. Um, What are other, like we look at homocysteine and what are some of the markers that you think are qualitative assessments for cardiovascular risk?
3: So that's an excellent question. So one one of the first things I look at is insulin resistance. So uh, we want to define that a little simplistically because an insulin resistance podcast is an R in itself. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) But to define it sort of simply, it would be the amount of insulin that you need to hold your blood sugar at a certain level. So let's say you have normal blood sugars of about 100 in the morning. How much insulin does it take take to hold the blood sugar at that level? And the lower the amount of insulin that you need, the more insulin sensitive you are. And the higher the amount you need is an indication of insulin resistance. So the normal example would be somebody having a blood sugar of about 90 and an insulin level of about five or lower. And that would give you an insulin score, and this is defined as HOMA, which is H-O-M-A, HOMA-I-R, of a little less than a one, which is normal. As your HOMA scores go up, what that indicates is that you need more and more insulin to keep your sugars under control. And the higher your insulin is, the worse your health is going to be from several standpoints. Number one is that you are going to be in a fat depositing mode. In other words, when your insulin levels are high, the body stores all the fat that you have eaten. It prevents the fat from being released into the bloodstream to be burned by the muscles. The metabolic machinery that you have to burn fat is turned off. The brain does not see signals of satiety. So you feel hungry all the time and you would like to eat all the time. The high insulin levels would create certain chemical changes in your bloodstream that leads to high blood pressure. So you're getting weight gain, you're feeling hungry, you're gaining weight, and your cholesterol quality is going down. So insulin resistance is a key factor for somebody to look at. Another factor we look at is inflammation markers. Are your inflammation markers high? And we check uh, CRP, C-reactive protein, We check serum ferritin, which is another important risk factor or inflammation factor. We check GGT, which is a liver enzyme that goes up when you have inflammation. And like Ali mentioned, we check some coagulation factors like homocysteine and fibrinogen because these are somewhat correlated with uh, the blood being a little on the thick side leading to strokes and heart disease. So this is kind of the metabolic evaluation that we do when somebody comes in saying, hey, how much I am at risk of getting heart disease.
2: Wow, this is so interesting and I think it's going to be really mind-blowing for a lot of our listeners. But before we go any deeper into today's topic, I want to have a quick word from our sponsor, Bonafide Provisions.
1: Yes. Bonafide Provisions makes true bone broth. That means that it gels. (laughs) And uh, they use only certified organic everything, which is amazing, and only grass-fed pasture-raised bones, no meat or filler stock. Um, I love using them as a tool in recipe development because the flavor is really easy to work with. It it doesn't have a really pungent flavor and that means that you can also sip on it as it is and you can also kind of soup it up. I like to add often a teaspoon of turmeric and a couple teaspoons of ghee and coconut oil and make butter bones. And that's one of my favorite ways to really kind of support my immune system, bring down inflammation and um, just mellow out in the middle of the day. It's
2: really nourishment in a cup. I love it. And Bonafide Provisions is frozen fresh, which means they don't use any preservatives or pasteurization techniques at all. It's available both online from their website, but also in pretty much every natural grocery store out there. And many conventional stores, including Walmart, Publix, and Kroger are starting to carry it. So you can look for Bonafide in the frozen aisle. And I just love their little slogan, the wellness is in the gelness. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah I've definitely shared on like instagram stories when i'm when it's thought it, it has a really great jiggle so we know that that gelatin and collagen is giving us that additional gut re- gut restoration or support really working as like a facelift for our gut so very therapeutic for leaky gut and what's interesting is you know there's not really a true definition for usda as far as what Bone broth is so a lot of the diluted products that are shelf-stable aren't going to give you that gelatinous support uh, I recommend going over to their website Which is bona fideprovisions.com, and get yourself like a starter Stash and you can use the code Ali Miller RD at checkout and you will get 20% off So an awesome way to have this in your freezer between your homemade batches of bone broth That actually provides you the therapeutic nutrients that just will not be matched from many other store
2: options that are out there. Yes, we always have a couple of bags on hand in the freezer when our personal stock runs low. And, you know, that's always going to happen when somebody in the household is getting sick or you get home from a long trip. So it's always really good to have that on hand. You can thaw it real quick and sip on it or use it in a recipe that night.
1: Yes. And bonafide provisions, I think I have a nice connection with them because of that gelling component i feel that they really have a high level of integrity and as they state they obsess about their ingredients and preparation method and it seems to be the closest product to like i said what i can make in my own household they slow simmer their bones for 18 to 48 hours to ensure that they're getting that extraction of nutrient density so go on over to bona bonafideprovisions.com Make sure to fill your cart to get that 20% off and get your best bang for your buck and use the code AllieMillerRD
2: at checkout to save. Sure. And then beyond that, you haven't even mentioned in in this piece, at least um, the actual cholesterol markers. So you're looking really at blood sugar and insulin resistance first. You're looking at inflammation and um, clotting factor of the blood. And then let's get into a little bit on um, the... LDL particle size and how particle count may have more to do with risk factor than anything
3: else. So that's an important segue into it. So when people come in uh, to me and they have had their lipid panel drawn, the first thing I tell them is that, hey, look, I'm not looking to see whether you have high or low cholesterol. I'm looking to see whether your cholesterol quality is good. So let's talk a little bit about that, and then we'll get into the LDL particle number and particle size. So a good quality cholesterol is when your triglyceride levels are low. So let's define what triglycerides are. Triglycerides is basically fatty acids combined to a glycerol molecule, and they should be, the body tries to keep the levels of triglycerides low in blood. So the way it does that is that either it packs it away into the muscles for energy or the muscles use it for energy or it packs it away into the fat cells. So when your triglyceride levels are high, it means that your fat cells are already overstuffed. That means they've gotten so large that your body is incapable of packing any more fat into it and fat spills into the bloodstream. So that is a sign that your cholesterol quality is poor. Another marker would be HDL cholesterol. That's the good cholesterol. So HDL cholesterol kind of goes in an inverse direction of triglycerides. If you have high triglycerides, you will have low HDL cholesterol because they share some of the proteins that are carrying the cholesterol and the triglycerides in the bloodstream. So that would be a marker that your cholesterol quality is bad. So like we discussed, when somebody goes on a low carb diet, this is what's happening to them. And what's happening is that they have converted from burning carbs to burning fat. So when you're burning fat, this is where a little bit of biochemistry comes in the fat gets taken up by the cells every cell has an uh, engine inside it which is called the mitochondria so the mitochondria takes the fat and burns it to energy and what it doesn't burn to energy especially in the liver it converts them to small sugar-like molecules which are called ketones and these ketones are things that power the brain instead of the sugar they can power part of our muscle energy as sugar but what i didn't know up until recently and this is a very important point what i didn't know up until recently is that the same enzyme machinery that is making ketones which is called the hmg coa synthase that's one of the enzymes same enzyme machinery that is making ketones is also the same enzyme machinery that makes cholesterol. So this is my model, it's not proven yet, but the more fat burning you are, the more ketones you are producing, the more cholesterol you're going to generate in the liver because you're, you're, you're processing substrate, you're processing fuel, through the same enzymatic machinery that is making ketones. And that's the same machinery that makes cholesterol as well. So now is a segue into LDL particle number. So what you have seen, Ali, in your patients is that as they go on a low-carb diet, as they're losing weight, as they're getting healthier, the LDL is going to go up. And the reason it's going to go up is because I think in my model like I am showing, is that you're making a lot of ketones, you're burning a lot of fat, so you're gonna generate a lot of cholesterol. So your LDL particle number will also be high. A few years back they said, when we didn't understand the subject as well, is that your LDL cholesterol is not that important because if it's high but your LDL particle number is low, you're protected. But that doesn't seem to be the case. If your LDL is about 200, not only will your LDL be high but your particle number will be way above 1800. It would be above 2000. Although you may have large size particles, they're called the large and fluffy LDL. So, I think we need a little bit more fundamental understanding as to why the LDL cholesterol will go up the healthier one gets on a low carb diet. And low sugars, low inflammation markers, low weight. And if all your metabolic markers and other health markers are going in the right direction and your LDL is going up, does that mean bad? And I'm not convinced that means bad. I'm in fact thinking that means good as long as your calcium score is zero, your stress test is good, somebody is following you. I also want to tell my listeners and your listeners that I'm not trying to give individual medical advice. And I would also be the first to admit that I'm quite biased in this area. And I would say that the 99.9% of mainstream cardiology advice is completely the opposite of what I'm saying. Yeah. So I would not hold them and say, hey, my doctor is saying this. Should I really believe you, Dr. Ali? I don't expect you to.
1: Can I ask you further, I I think that's so interesting, and I'm sure that's where you're getting deeper into some of your presentations honing in on beta-oxidation and this connection of HMG-CoA reductase enzyme pathway, that's the same pathway that statin drugs hit as well. So can you go on the connection there? What's your perspective on statin drugs as far as being cardioprotective and um, also, would a statin drug potentially interfere with someone's progress with ketosis?
3: So, um, very good question. And I think in some way, Ali is trying to get me into trouble. (laughs) Never. (laughs) So, uh, uh, let me just say that the HMG-CoA pathway that I'm talking about is the HMG-CoA synthase, which makes HMG-CoA before it breaks down into beta-hydroxybutyrate and S2S state. And the HMG-CoA, instead of going down that pathway, can go through the cholesterol pathway and go through a separate enzyme, which is called HMG-CoA reductase, uh, which, is, uh, a, which is a parallel pathway. So having clarified that minor nuance in terms of biochemistry, let's take the question about statins. So um, when I talk about statins, I'd like to divide it into primary and secondary prevention. And I'd like to try to divide it between men and women. So um, let's see how well we can dissect it. So secondary prevention is use of statins in a patient, who has a stent, who's had a heart attack, who's had bypass surgery. In other words, they have had a cardiac event in the past. Primary prevention is giving somebody statins when they don't have a stent, don't have a heart attack, don't have bypass surgery. In other words, trying to prevent an event. So when you look at that group of patients, the primary prevention group, the data in terms of mortality reduction, whether it actually reduces mortality or no, is not very robust. Not everybody agrees on it. And even if there is a benefit, the benefit in terms of mortality reduction, and we need to spend a little time in terms of looking at endpoints. So when you do a clinical study, one of the most robust endpoint is to see death benefit or mortality benefit less robust endpoint would be seeing whether somebody had a lower risk of having a heart attack because the definition of the heart attack is a little bit nebulous i may look at a patient and look at him and say he's had a heart attack somebody else may look at it and disagree everybody would agree that there is less disagreement whether somebody's dead or not dead That's, that's the ultimate end point, right? <laughs> that's the ultimate endpoint. So when you do a meta-analysis, and of course it's done by different groups, but like the Cochrane Collaboration, which is a very good, uh, I'd say, organization that looks at scientific papers, they find almost no mortality benefit for primary prevention in a larger population group and they don't definitely find any mortality benefit in women for primary prevention. And Cochrane goes so far out to say that mortality benefit is not even there for secondary prevention in women, and if it is there, it's quite questionable. So what you're left with is secondary prevention in middle-aged men for statin benefit. And secondary prevention in middle-aged men, if you take a look at that group of patients, and you give the benefit to the pharmaceutical companies that are doing the studies and say, these pharmaceutical companies have been above board, they don't manipulate the data, they don't lie, that they are honest, that they are all they're looking for is welfare of the society. And there have been a lot of contrary information to that. In other words, pharmaceutical companies are known to manipulate the data, known to not be very ethical when it comes to conducting clinical trials. And they are the ones that have done all these trials. But we want to give them the benefit and say, hey, you have been above board. Not only that, you take their best clinical study, the study that had their best benefit, and for that, you have to go all the way back to 1994 and look at the Scandinavian simvastatin trial. It's called the Forest trial. And in that, if I were to summarize and say that, let's say you take middle-aged men who have had a previous heart attack or stent or bypass surgery, and you give them statins for one year, the chances of you reducing their death rate is about 0.5 to 0.6%. so 99.4 or 99.5% of these patients would not benefit in terms of mortality reduction. so at the outset we need to physicians need to recognize that the benefit of statins is small in terms of mortality reduction. Now people may argue and say the benefit is a little bit larger when it comes to reducing both heart attacks and death. I will give them that point in middle-aged men and maybe they have a point to make. So I want to not only talk about the benefits of statins but I want to talk about potential side effects because One of the most important thing a physician has to do as as somebody who's doing an intervention of giving somebody a statin that they may take for 30 to 40 years, three to four decades, is to talk to them about potential downsides. Does it affect your muscles? Can it make you a diabetic? Does it have impact on your memory and cognition? Is there any data that shows that you may have a higher cancer risk? So... I think it's imperative for physicians to do a risk-benefit analysis, tell the patients about the potential side effects of these medicines, and that's how you get an informed consent. And then of course, you also should point out your bias because none of us are unbiased. I am biased and I would tell them, I'll tell every patient of mine, that my colleague, my colleague physicians view this information differently. And I'd be happy to work with you and put you on a statin and observe you for side effects, uh, like muscle side effects, memory, cognition, and other things. So I don't know if, that kind of summarizes the information. it could sure. be a little bit too complicated.
2: <laughs> no, I think that's I think that's fantastic, and maybe we want to for a moment go down that uh, that rabbit hole of some of these side effects and why they occur because I think that's that's huge to first of all talk to your patients about potential side effects, and do you recommend? potentially any supplementation like vitamin D or CoQ10 if they are choosing to go on a statin because you know that the statin is going to block those
3: pathways. So I do, I tell my patients to take a CoQ10 if they are on a statin, not because I have definitive data that tells me that's the way to go, uh, but just because I am thinking from a standpoint of uh, pathophysiology which means that what does an LDL molecule carry? It carries CoQ10. When you give a statin, do you reduce LDL? Yes, you reduce LDL. But I'm not sure that any of the studies prove that giving CoQ10 supplementation will actually benefit because what we need to understand is that the CoQ10 that you have ingested is going to be absorbed by the body Go to the liver, get packaged in the liver into an LDL molecule, exported out, taken up by the muscle cells, and then that CoQ10 then go to the mitochondria and get to the location where it needs to work. It's possible that it happens, but the steps to see whether it's happening by radio labeling CoQ10 and seeing if it's getting there is not clear. Um, you brought up a very important point about. Uh, vitamin D Uh, 70% of us population is deficient in vitamin D and what most people don't recognize is that there is a dehydrocholesterol that is there in our skin and that dehydrocholesterol when gets exposed to sunlight gets converted to vitamin D so it forms as a thin oily layer on your skin and on exposure to sunlight or, or midday sunlight and um That's what is being converted to vitamin D. Um, Number of other side effects that you need to watch out, see whether people are getting issues with memory, cognition, thinking. It's a little hard to kind of uh, objectively evaluate that. Um, Muscle weakness, joint injuries, these are all issues that can be side effects of statins. Also looking at your blood sugar control. Do you ha- are you having an elevation in your hemoglobin A1C? Is there a problem with your sugar control? So those are some of the side effects that you want to be looking at.
1: And I think it's so interesting as well because a lot of those things, like you said, maybe can't directly define, but is it a low-fat diet, the drop of cholesterol that may also influence hormone because we know hormone requires fat in its production pathways. And that's where we can see definite issues is also in sexual hormone function along with the kind of some people would call it rapid aging processes. How about on the abundant side of things, Dr. Ali, are there particular foods beyond cutting carbohydrates? Um, Are there particular foods that you recommend your patients to have that are heart healthy or particular nutrients of focus beyond vitamin D? Yes.
3: uh, I think, um, uh, Diet that is focused more on natural foods, whole foods, is the way I would go. I would say that if you are searching for food choices, uh, animal-sourced food is a very good choice. Uh, Red meat, uh, marbled meat, uh, chicken, fish, eggs, shrimps, cheese, uh, butter, um, and fatty fish, these are all good choices. If and it's so
1: opposite look- other than the fish, I think, from what people hear.
3: <laughs> yes. Yeah, most of these food choices are not considered to be good by mainstream medicine other than the fatty fish. You are absolutely right. And then from a plant-based source, I would say things that are high in fat and fiber, like avocados, like pistachios, uh, almonds, cashews, um, leafy green vegetables that are a little high in cellulose. Those are some of the things that I would recommend. I would stay away from starchy fruit, uh, starchy vegetables, sugary fruits, and sugary vegetables um, because those would carry a lot of fructose, which leads to insulin resistance. So fortunately, we have some extremely good food choices to choose from that are satiating that create a good palate. And um, I think Ali is an expert at creating the right kind of mixture of these to create a delightful meal.
1: Oh, thank you. That's a wonderful compliment. (laughs) And so let's tell listeners, Dr. Ali, about how they can Find you or connect with you, and and where they can find more resources for those that are doing a low carb diet that feel like you know they have to go into battle, quote unquote, with their general practitioner or specialists to advocate for themselves. So, what are good resources, and where can people learn and access more on you?
3: Um, a very good question. You know, what are the resources? Fortunately. In the last five years, there have been an explosion of very good resources for low-carb community. Um, You can start with uh, Naturally Nourished with Ali Miller. You can come to the Eat Mostly Fats Facebook page group that uh, my office runs. Uh, You could look at YouTube videos from multiple different sources that give you advice on calcium scoring, on a low carb diet, on diets that reduce inflammation from my group. Um, you can also look at them from big uh, conferences like Low Carb Houston, Low Carb Denver. So, a number of online resources are available. Uh, There is a diet doctor website that you could go to. It's uh, somewhat of a paid website. So if you don't want to spend money, there are all the other resources that I talked about that are free and available to you. But on a more fundamental level, you want to have a practitioner who is giving you reassurance that what you are doing is actually creating the health benefit. And that is where I'm a little bit lacking in terms of how I can support you because you need to find out in your own community as to who are the physicians who are around who can help evaluate you from a health standpoint when you go on a low-carb diet. Because these are the individuals, these are the physicians who understand not just how high or low your cholesterol is, but understand how to evaluate cholesterol quality. These are the physicians who understand how to evaluate you for insulin resistance. These are the physicians who know how to evaluate you for inflammation markers. They can send you for a calcium score and tell you, hey, your calcium score is low and this is what that means. Hmm. So in other words, I'm asking your listeners to be actually proactive, be a part of the solution. Demand from your healthcare practitioner that's saying that, hey, I have benefited from going on a low carb diet. I've lost weight, my blood pressure is better, my sugars are better. Yes. Why don't you, as my physician, look into this? Why don't you evaluate, you evaluate me for insulin resistance? Why are you not checking my inflammation markers? What do you think about my cholesterol quality? By the way, have you looked at low-carb Denver and what does that say about cholesterol? These are the kinds of grassroots efforts that we need and that people like Becky and Ali and me and many others are trying to improve in terms of the education of our country so that collectively we ask this question and we ask this question of mainstream medicine and force them to actually look at what we are doing and be critical of us and improve our understanding. I love
1: that. And I think really tying back into that concept, like you said, Dr. Ali, about first do no harm, you know, the the way that we are trained to practice and work with clients is looking at each individual as a complex web and weighing out the cost to benefit relationship and being heard by your practitioner is an important piece of the puzzle too. So we'll be sure to link some resources that you've shared as well as those to find a practitioner. I know Low Carb USA has that on their website as an option. And I I think that you've really shed some light on a area of complexity and confusion. Many people within our community like I said, really feel like they have to go to battle and hopefully they have some reassurance on some new information of the potential benefits, not just that cholesterol may not be harmful, but that it may have beneficial uh, cardioprotective and life-supporting factors. And and I think that that really can give a 180 on perspective for the individual um, to really feel empowered.
3: I couldn't agree more. You you put it very nicely there, Ali.
1: <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on Naturally Nourished. We can't thank you enough for sharing your time with us today. Um, if there's anything else that you want to leave our listeners with, we will share the resource to your Facebook group as well. Um, anything else that you'd like to shed light on that we haven't asked you about today?
3: Oh, no, not at all. I think we covered a lot of ground. Uh, What I'd like to see is if you send me a link to this podcast, I'd listen to it and see what are all the wrong things I said. Oh, no way. (laughs) And and if I did, then I'd like to send you uh, either an email or other things to help clarify that for people.
1: Oh, you're wonderful Uh (laughs) and so humble (laughs) and and so well-educated and versed. Well, thank you so much for taking your time to be with us. And for all of you listening, um, you can hop on over to iTunes um, and go and rank five stars for the Naturally Nourished podcast. Give us a couple sentences of what you're enjoying. And that keeps helping us bring on wonderful guests like Dr. Nandir Ali. Thank you again for joining us this afternoon.
3: Thank you, Ali. And Becky, you all have a good day.